know, in my struggle to find a solution for the people that I am, I'm supposed to protect. And one of the greatest fears that I had was to be asked by one of the, my people, you know, we, we're hearing about the sea level rise, and we understand that uh, given our vulnerability is going to be a huge threat. What solutions have you found for us? Because the honest and uh, frustrating response would have been, you know, there is nothing we can do about it because it's beyond our control. One is not deserving of leadership if that is the kind of answer. Naudi and welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder, your guide to navigating the cross currents of security in the Blue Pacific continent. I'm Aka Rimon, your host, and I wish to begin by acknowledging that we are broadcasting today from unceded land. I especially want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land on which we broadcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. And for this special episode, I'm joined by the Australia Pacific Security College Deputy Director, Jay Caldwell. Hello, Jay. How are you? Māori Aka. I'm very well, very well. Glad to sneak back in here into the studio with you. Great. Yes. And it's so, so nice to have you um, back on on one of the podcasts, um, Jay. Are you excited for our episode today? <laughs> I am excited for the for the conversation we're about to have. I think it's it's a really critical conversation. Um, and uh, both both in terms of our special guest, who we'll get to introducing in a moment, and also in terms of yourself, in terms of the expertise, I'm really looking forward to learning in terms of what we've got uh, happening today. So today, if I set the scene, our, um, our discussion is going to build on the IPCC uh, 2023 synthesis report with a focus on migration and particularly how climate change is driving displacement and migration worldwide. Mm. And uh, we have with us here a world leader uh, who we've had the delight of having around the ANU over the past week, uh, who's been in a number of conversations, but one of the most important voices that there's been uh, on climate migration, who continues to inform it. But I'll let you do the introductions here, Aka. Our special guest today is Mr. Anote Tong, the former president of the Republic of um, Kiribati and the founder of the Migration with Dignity policy. Anote served uh, three terms from 2003 to 2016. During his term in office, he was responsible for drawing international attention to the human dimension of climate change and for declaring what was then the largest UNESCO World Heritage Site, PIPA, the Phoenix Islands Protected um, Area, which his government called a gift to humanity. Uh, Tong has been nominated twice for the Nobel Peace Prize. Anote, welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. So my first question is, is on the impact of human activities. I think if anything that the report has given us, it's the um, level of greenhouse gas emissions um, in the atmosphere. It has been confirmed to have reached 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer. Um, now, clearly, this will have detrimental impacts on our natural environment, in, particularly in the Pacific, but not just the Pacific. It's, it's the mm -hmm. whole world, the whole of planet Earth that's um, affected. Uh, how does it impact our way of life and on, you know, on our people in every region of the world? What does this message um, signal for, for you, Mr. Tong, in terms of uh, the movement of people or, or human mobility? Well, let me, <clears throat> let me begin with a, um, an acknowledgement of uh, thank you for having me. And of course, I, uh, I asked the, uh, the custodians of this land past, present, and emerging to 
be with us and join us in places as we have this uh, conversation. Um, the, the numbers, which are, of course, scientifically based uh, numbers, as far as people in the Pacific are concerned, they're just numbers. I think it's about what the implications of those numbers would mean. And, of course, many of most of our people in the, in the region don't understand what these numbers mean. <coughs> but excuse me. But those of us who keep track of what's going on, 1.1 rise in global temperature is very getting very close to the limit we set ourselves in 2015 at 1.5. But of course, it's got to be truly understood that let us go back to the fourth assessment report of the IPCC, which then predicted that uh, even by the end of the century, the the, um, the impacts of climate change would already be disastrous for uh, the countries on the front line, the low-lying atoll countries like uh, Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands, and all those other communities which are have uh, basically atoll nations, atoll islands. You know, I think here, I understand this includes the Tokelau, the um, Wallace and Futuna, and maybe your your northern islands and the Torres Strait. Okay. I think uh, they would also be subjected to the same impacts. And so that fourth assessment report uh, in, uh, well predicted that by the end of the century, our islands, those islands, including ours, would be submerged. In the subsequent reports, including the sixth assessment report, which came out in uh, February last year, I think, 2022, that assessment had been updated. And uh, the science further reaffirmed but only to say that, no, it won't be the end of the century, it'll be by 2060. And so the scenario is getting tighter and tighter. The, um, the tipping points are getting closer and closer. And so um, it's not about the numbers, it's what it means for people. Okay? And this is what we need to focus on. And I think you want to bring it down to the human level. We've got to talk about the impacts, the impacts of which I know from my own personal experience that we are already experiencing. And so um, we have a serious challenge ahead of us. Can we hold this in time for the rest? Because we're already gone. I think the scenarios indicate that. Unless we can reverse this process, those countries like mm. Kiribati and uh, other Pacific Island countries in the region really are looking at um, very radical adaptation in order to stay above the rising seas. But otherwise, we're all going to be subjected to huge displacement of our people it was um i must admit it was sobering in in uh preparing uh for this conversation sir to 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 read through the and, and obviously there are implications other than sea level rise but that implications around sea level rise in terms of one in a hundred year storms becoming annual events by the end of our century the baked in element in terms of sea level rise it's incredibly sobering all over again to see, to see it in such stark language and with such a high degree of confidence uh, in, in, the, in the current report. Mm. Yeah, if I may just add to that, you know, we, <clears throat> we're always being focused on the rise in the sea level, but I've always believed that that's not the most immediate danger mm. because already the, the, where the water is now, you know, at the beginning of this year, in my own home, I've got uh, photographs up, videos to show you if you wish. But uh, the water was coming over my seawall onto my front door. And so, and that was a calm day. Now, if there was a change in the weather pattern that already seems to be a trend towards, then uh, even if we are where we are today with the level of uh, sea level, 
it would be disastrous. And so the change in the weather pattern, I think uh, in 2015, there was uh, Cyclone Pam, which hit Vanuatu, destroyed it. But then it did what it's not supposed to do and just go northwards towards the equator. It originates in the equator. And they're not supposed to go back. But this one did. Mm. Flooded all of the islands of Tuvalu, flooded our southernmost islands and flooded the rest to a lesser degree, but it destroyed food crops. Mm. And the rest, it destroyed homes. Yeah. It's been quite stark seeing Vanuatu with the uh, cascade of crisis in terms of what that looks like. Mm. Uh, Can I pick up a a question in in regards, I guess, to what we're all, and you made the point, Mm. sir, in terms of what what we're already seeing. And according to the UNHCR, that that trend towards hazardous weather you pointed to, uh, we're going to continue to see that, and including things like prolonged droughts mm. as well. So it's not just that the it's sometimes that that absence of water uh, that's actually kind of a real challenge that um, that Pacific Islands are, go- are going to be facing. Um, and they put the they UNHCR puts the figure on 20 million people per year that are displaced in some form from climate related drivers. Are we seeing this already in the Pacific and, and are there particular instances you'd like to, to raise for people in Aka? You may have some examples as well uh, in terms of where we're already seeing uh, climate-based displacement um, occurring in the Pacific Islands. You know, we, <clears throat> we don't have to look at what's happening today. We've had experiences of this in the past mm. where we've had our people um, relocated from our islands uh, subjected to uh, drought events and uh, if I might explain, this is this happened some time ago when our people in some of the islands had to be relocated in the and uh, uh, Phoenix Islands, a part of uh, Kiribati, and then relocated in the Solomon Islands simply because of the weather conditions. Mm. Now that that is happening again, we're just coming to towards the end of uh, a prolonged drought period where the, the government has uh, declared a state of emergency, mm. where people are really suffering because we use the underground uh, aquifer as our source of water. And so as the rain uh, uh, does not uh, remain uh, uh, you know, dry, then uh, the water becomes uh, very brackish. Mm. And um, it's very difficult. I've had the experience of drinking when the, the, the water has been in that condition. Mm. And you have to struggle to, to, to drink it. It's not healthy. But if you have no choice, what else can you do? Mm. And so we're coming towards the end of that as the El Nino begins to swing into place again. Okay, so um, as I was leaving home, the rains have started to fall, and I guess here in Australia you begin then to experience your dry weather and maybe your your bushfires. Mm. Okay, so yes, but I think what we are experiencing is um, a more intensive. These effects have become more intensive. Mm. Mm. Yeah, sorry. I also wanted to add to the discussion, Jay, and thank you for posing that question because I think it's uh, the conception held from outside the Pacific that they don't fully understand that you know the marginal increase in sea level rise is devastating. It's catastrophic on small island countries like like ours in Kiribati. And you ask if there are displacement happening. I think for me, the bigger question is really about the ability to access life, Mm. full dignity, Mm. access to water, access to resources. And these resources have been affected in such a way that their ability to recharge themselves naturally 
has has been impacted one way or another. And that is not giving us the full dignity of life that we expect. So I think it's more, it's bigger than displacement. It's beyond mm -hmm. that. It's about livelihoods. It's about survival. It's about access to everything else that everyone can access ac ac across the globe that we're not. Yeah. Fantastic. It, that, that's, a, that's a different framing, I think, from what often at the technical level, mm. there's a talk about the numbers and movement, but that's the lived experience uh, in terms of... In but terms but of again, you know, spring tides, you know, we've had incidences. Um, Mr. Tong, you recall that I think it was the Cyclone Pam of 2015, where we saw some of the islands have had to relocate their communities because mm. of the, the flooding. Mm. Yeah, and it was massive, you know, it was a big um, disaster for us. And we weren't prepared for it. It happened. And um, adding on to the shoulders of government, you know, the, uh, <laughs> what do you call the the burden of right. having to bear the cost of these unforeseen um, incidences? Yeah. You know, if I might <clears throat> just um, go back on some of the, the very experiences that we've had, mm. where given the, as Arka says, the very small margin between the, the height of the, 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 the sea during the spring tide mm. and what land remains above the marginal. And then all you need is a bit of a breeze, okay? If we had, if we would, because um, 30 kilometers an hour wind for us is a storm, okay? Almost a storm. Mm -hmm. But if we had that in coincidence with these very high tides, then the homes would be destroyed, okay? And if we, there was, there have been occasions where the weather was fine, but there's a, a pressure difference somewhere and it would press down and mm -hmm. push the water up. And we've had, uh, occasions when homes were destroyed, we had to bring in emergency relief. And uh, when that happens, sometimes it's not easy to bring in relief because the, 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 the airports have been flooded. That cannot, um, does not allow the, the, the planes to land. So it's got to be by boat, and that takes quite some time, maybe a, more than a couple of days, to, especially to reach the furthest islands. Mm -hmm. And so we do have this problem, and it's always there on the very edge, waiting to happen. Uh, given the right conditions, all of this will happen. But of course, there will come a time when the seawater would come and probably would not go. Mm. And if it come, comes in up with sufficient strength, then it would leave nothing behind. If I, if I may jump in um, mm. now, Jay, and just um, uh, you know ask a question. And I want to take us back to you know this week. It has been well, how can I say this, a power pack week for me <laughs> of learning and insights from so. the um, to hell with drowning. You know, we're talking yeah. about the IPCC report, but in at the ANU, we have this conference that's brought together leaders like Arnote, Kalifate uh, Tavola, Mick Taylor, Dan Mick Taylor from PNG, and others, and the wealth of wisdom and guidance that mm. we've um, sought from this um, Pacific Elders Voice has been, you know, critical. But I want to take us back to... Um, your time in government, uh, Mr. Tong, if you can tell us a bit more about migration, we opened up with that question about the impacts of climate on human mobility. And in 2003, when you came in, in into government, uh, sir, you introduced the migration with dignity policy. And I know coming from the conference, there were heated debates around migration, you know, not being the solution, but how do we 
Where, where, what was your thinking on this? If you can just walk us through that, help us to unpack, to understand why migration is such a critical option for a country that is barely three meters above sea level, a country that has nowhere to turn, no higher ground to turn in the face of um, sea level rise. You know, the, um, <clears throat> I think it's got, in order to truly appreciate what is happening uh, in our part of the world, one has to understand the structure of the islands, the geography. Okay? We talk about three meters, it's not three meters. We talk about an average elevation of two meters, it's not even two meters. Okay? The, the tide changes that we get are at the most two meters. When it comes over two meters, then there is serious danger. And so, the, um, how do we deal with that? And I must, I must say that when I first saw the report of the IPCC, the third assessment report, which was pretty basic at that time, then I saw the, these two words, sea level rise, and my immediate reaction was one of panic mm. because I understood very well the vulnerability because having lived in a situation like that, you know, we, we regard these weather events as part of the normal cycle, but when you're getting new information coming in and telling you that, uh, yes, it's normal, but it's getting more abnormal as the days go by, and that the sea level will not continue to be rising the way it's been for the last so many years. And so you just extrapolate beyond that, understanding from, certainly from my reading of the reports, that it's not a linear escalation, it's uh, exponential. And so it's going to happen much, much faster than, uh, than we'd seen in the past uh, decades. The Australia Pacific Security College aims to strengthen our blue Pacific continent through learning, policy engagement and regional collaboration. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn and find our library of research, blogs, podcasts and videos on our website, pacificsecurity.net. Our podcast, The Pacific Wayfinder, brings together leading voices on our shared security challenges. Stay up to date on the latest thinking on Pacific security and subscribe to the Pacific Wayfinder wherever you get your podcasts. And so, you know, in my struggle to find a solution for the people that I am I'm supposed to protect, and one of the greatest fears that I had was to be asked by one of the, my people, you know, we we're hearing about the sea level rise, and we understand that uh, given our vulnerability, it's going to be a huge threat. What solutions have you found for us? Because the honest and uh, uh, frustrating response would have been, no, there is nothing we can do about it because it's beyond our control. And that was the answer that I could, that was the only answer that I could give, but it was never good enough. Mm. It really demonstrates that um, as, we're not, one is not deserving of leadership if that is the kind of answer you're going to give. You've got to do more than that. And so I must admit that it, I, I struggled for a long time, went crazy, I guess, <laughs> with a crazy situation <laughs> trying to find. I went, uh, I talked to people about uh, floating islands, raising the islands. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so one of the options, um, at the end of the day, I had to find something that I could put on paper and say, these are the options. And so, at the time, the options would have been like this. Given the scenario that are being predicted, that the islands will be submerged, we would have, in order to survive as a, as, as a country, 
we would have to undertake very, very radical adaptation measures, maybe most probably by raising the islands above the rising seas and continuing to do that. Hopefully that would uh, safeguard, but we I also acknowledge the reality that we could never mobilize the resources to be able to do that to all of the islands. And it may be the case that we could only mobilize the resources to raise one or two islands. Mm. But then this would raise the question of what do we do with all of those people? And so there is going, there is no doubt in my mind that there will be those of our people who can, will choose, who will choose to migrate. But do we just allow them to do it on their own, or do we take a pro proactive uh, position by actually preparing them to make that choice consciously so that they do not migrate as second-class citizens? Let's mm -hmm. just look at what's happening in Europe. The massive migration of people from North Africa. I, I, I monitored that very closely. What happened in Europe was people were scrambling to get across, and I'm sure it was from um, climate-driven uh, 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 impacts. And so what, is, what has been the result? People were dying in the process. People were moving into situations where they're not always entirely welcome. Mm -hmm. And because they were not prepared, nor were the, the communities they were moving into prepared. And so it was really an attempt on my part to try and put some dignity in one of the most undignified uh, uh, events in any country's history. And um, I can tell you, it's not an easy thing to come to terms with. And um, I know that uh, sometimes my suggestion that uh, of my advocacy of uh, migration with dignity has been misunderstood. And um, in some cases, actually rejected. Mm -hmm. But I think we've got to be brutally realistic given the scenario of what's at stake. I can assure you that the world that we know today will not be the world that we will have mm. in the next few decades. And we have to come to terms with that rather than hope and pretend that it will not happen. Let's plan for it, mm. just in case it happens, because I believe it is going to happen. So that, that point you make about people uh, misunderstanding and rejecting the, the point you're making there, um, and, and the policy and the, the initiative and the struggle, I guess, that you're talking about in terms of formation of that struggle, of that policy. Why, why do you think that rejection occurs? Why do you think people people struggle with it in the way that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I can understand because those are my very sentiments. Mm -hmm. From a nationalistic point of view, you don't want to give up, you don't want to be defeated, you don't want to be seen as being not nationalistic, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, again, th there are those who believe maybe that uh, by suggesting that we migrate, that uh, it would undermine our negotiating positions for the loss and damage and whatever else we've been negotiating, okay? But I don't think this is about negotiations. This is about a, a survival for our future generation. I've got 20-odd grandchildren, and I don't want their lives to be a point of a negotiation. Mm -hmm. I want to provide to be able to provide a 100% guarantee that they will be safe. And so the, the propositions that I put forward were, yes, let's build our resilience so that at least those that choose to migrate on digni uh, with dignity, okay, on merit if necessary, if, if it, that does not have to be uh, what special consideration. Mm -hmm. I am serious. Yep. 
Because I'd rather have our people migrate on merit with qualifications and being able to come here. Places like Australia, who is terribly short of uh, skilled labor. Let's train our people to be skillful so that they can come and uh, build a place here as worthwhile citizens. Contribute to the economic uh, welfare of this country. Not as second-class citizens occupying the slums as we see in some cases where mm-hmm. our people from the Pacific have gone into cities like Oakland and gone into the, um, the backyards. This is not what we want. And uh, we have the opportunity to plan in order to avoid that. Rather than take up the emotional argument and say, no, 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 it won't happen. We don't want it until the last moment. And it happens, and then we are not prepared. Let's give our people the opportunity to make that choice themselves, but let us prepare them in order to make that choice. This is the concept of migration with dignity, but it's a two-way process. It also needs preparation of the communities they're going into so that there is a a very good acculturation program from both sides so that there are the tensions would be removed. And um, I, <clears throat> how I came up, came up with this because I spoke with uh, some German elderly people and they, I asked them, how do you feel about the massive people coming in from North Africa? I said, because mm-hmm. Germany is one of the most accommodating countries in Europe. And they said, we were very happy to assist initially. But then we began to be overwhelmed, okay? And so they began to worry, okay? And so that is going to happen. But given the numbers in the Pacific, I don't think we're ever going to take over Australia. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I was going to ask a question in relation to what um, Tong just said. Um, And as you are aware, um, Tong, the government of Australia is introducing a Pacific engagement visa. How would you advise, if you had any guidance or wisdom to share, to strategically organize the quota and how this the selection process will be driven? What would be your advice? Well, my advice would be to simply to say that it's not a new thing, okay? That it's already been happening in here in the Pacific. Because the Pacific had been divided into, into uh, uh, roughly three groups, okay? And um, let me say this because it's been so obvious, but maybe not obvious to some people. With the Polynesians more aligned with Australia, with the Cook Islands having free access, Newway having free access to Kalau, having free access to New Zealand. With the Northern Micronesians having free access to the United States. With um, Australia having a very close relationship with Papua New Guinea. But it's the rest of us who are former British colonies who remain in isolation. And this is where you've got the Solomon Islands, Fiji, Kiribati, Tuvalu, and uh, Vanuatu as well, who are former British colonies, um, just waiting there for somebody to come and what? To be there. And so I think it's something that is not new. There is, it's not breaking new ground. It's just doing what has been happening. I, I understand the, 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 the Prime Minister of Samoa came up with an interesting proposition. Yes. And I think it's been proposed in the past. And I and I am proposing it also because in our compact type arrangement, where similar to what uh, New Zealand has with those Polynesian countries and what the United States has with the, uh, the Micronesian countries, there is no reason why it cannot happen. You know, a free movement of people, okay? And um, in the process, hopefully, 
the with combined with the program of upskilling our people in our own countries, you know, providing that kind of filling in those skills gaps, which is the problem here in Australia and New Zealand. This is why we have you have our seasonal workers coming in to prop up your your uh, what uh, your farming industry. Mm. Well, we we supported the farming industry in the past with the phosphates that we provided, and I, on this occasion, we have enough more than enough labor to to provide um, that support again, and at the same time, draw some benefits out of it. Can can I build on that, yep. that, that yes. question there? And I think the uh, the Samoan Prime Minister's challenge, and oh, it yes. really was a challenge, <laughs> um, and, and it had great ambition in terms of an EU-style arrangement mm -hmm. in terms of open access within that extended Pacific mm. family mm. In, in, in terms of using that kind of phrase and thinking. And... And often, and you've been a national leader and you've dealt with this issue as a national leader and often the challenge is directed to a country like Australia, but is there a role for the region as a whole here mm -hmm. in terms of shaping up a system of both thinking about migration with dignity at a regional level that we could actually create a structure that you think would work consistently for everyone? Well, I think Australia... Um, has started doing it uh, with the uh, Australia Pacific Technical Congress, okay? And I think, I hope it was the result of our discussions with John Howard in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in uh, Madang at the retreat in the forum in, 20, in 2005, where he proposed this, uh, uh, the, uh, the Australia Pacific Technical Congress. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to John Howard. I said, John, you, I know you, you bring in thirty to 40,000 people from Asia every year. Why can you not bring our people in? And he said, but uh, you people are not trained. So I trained them. And so the, the, the DPTC program has the potential to do that. But it needs to be propped up at the national level so that they, they dovetail into the APTC program. Mm. Because I understand that some of my colleagues have complained about the brain drain. Quite frankly, I don't subscribe to that notion because we have too many brains. Okay, <laughs> they're just not being developed. Okay, we need to develop those brains mm -hmm. and export them, and in the process, maybe get some uh, remittances back. Mm. Okay, but I think uh, the seasonal worker scheme and uh, all of these things are actually making it easier for our people to come into your into the different cultural environment because crossing that environmental barrier is quite a quite an obstacle. It's not easy, I can assure you. And so, uh, coming in and out uh, gets them used to it, and uh, then they will learn to appreciate what it is that they are coming into, what it is that they can offer, mm -hmm. and understand and overcome the um, the uh, the hurdles that they would otherwise face if they were just to come in one go and try to adjust. But this is more of a, a slow adjustment process. We have had that this experience with our own. Uh, seamen who've worked on, on German ships and um, right. gone into Europe, okay? Yep. And they come back uh, very westernized <laughs> in some ways. In some ways, in a, in a positive, in some ways, in a, ne a negative sense. But there is no denying the fact that they've seen a different world and are beginning to appreciate it and understand it. For the latest analysis on climate, environmental, human, and national security trends in our Blue Pacific region, you can read the APSC blog at pacificsecurity.net. Our contributors come from across the region and include policymakers, practitioners, and academics. If you would like to contribute, get in contact with our team through our website.
Okay, I'm going to throw in the next question around the international um, political landscape around climate displacement. And we do understand that there is no law or protective, uh, protective mechanism for climate displaced people. How do you see migration with dignity responding to this very um, absence of a policy internationally? Yeah, I think uh, if I might draw that, make that distinction between migration with dignity and refugee status, because I think uh, by definition, migration with dignity does not in any at any level uh, uh, refer to refugee status. But I think I, I acknowledge, when, because when I was advocating this, and they tried to match it with the definition, the, the international definition of um, climate uh, refugee, which does not exist in the way, because not because the um, simply because the international definition is lacking, okay, and yet we remain with the you know this um, something that is lacking. I don't see what what is the reason why we cannot change that because climate change was never a challenge until most recently, and so surely how how inflexible can that law be as not to realize the changing circumstances and accommodate it accordingly. But uh, migration with dignity would be something that would be part of the normal process of migration. And uh, I think you, it must also be understood that this process will ha happen of its own accord. But there is no doubt in my mind that there will come a time when the migration with dignity pathway will not be adequate and it would run out of utility because the, the um the disaster comes, and then there would be a scramble. There would be no time to train to train people, so they can so that they can migrate with dignity. And that is the time that the international definitions need to be able to step up. Can I just ask the the recent um, UN resolution that called for the International Criminal Court to uh, to make its yeah Court of Justice. Sorry, thank you. Uh, to make its to make its judgment, uh, it called for a judgment in regards to uh, climate impacts and responsibility. Do you see a pathway there in regards to? Uh, and I see you shaking your head already. Uh, <laughs> in terms, in terms of uh, climate refugee status, you know, I um, I don't know. I've never truly understand people's position on the climate change issue because what it is is a um, you are. The climate change is destroying the livelihoods and the homes of people. Mm. It's a slow process, but nevertheless, the most effective process ever in the history of mankind in destroying the lives of so many people and their, their homelands. Yet, there's never been a, an acknowledgement. And I think that is because those who would be responsible for all of this are, in fact, maybe defining those defining the the definitions okay and i i guess in my moments of deep frustration i said it's no different from and i've said i've spoken in the u.s and i've said let me give you an example there are these two guys living next door to each other and this guy has got a tree in his uh, driveway so he decides to cut his his tree but his tree fell on the other guy's house okay and so what does he do when somebody comes, oh, you've done that. So what does he say? You're too bad. No, he doesn't. He pays for it. So why are those destroying our homes not paying? Mm. 
the same compensation. Where is the justice? Simply because there is no international regime to deal with this, but a moral compass, conscience. So tell us what the right thing to do is. And I'd like to think that our international legal system are based on morality. Well, I'm going to ask a last question, Jay, if you have any more questions, let me know. But um, we're also running out of time. But um, bringing us back to the region, and our region has seen a lot of um, opportunities, if I may say, um, challenges, um, tensions in the, in the past uh, year or so. Uh, where do you see our region in 10 years' time? And by saying this, I want to acknowledge, uh, sir, that you know you have been among... Um, our Pacific leaders who have done mm -hmm. great work mm -hmm. raising the visibility of our Pacific, our Blue Pacific continent internationally. At the UN, bringing climate change to the fore of the discussions, changing from terrorism to climate change focus, as you've been saying, and um, including the oceans um, in the in the climate change um, discussions as well. But where do you see our region? And, and also in the in a climate that's um, increasingly uh, geopoliticized, if I may say, the, the pressures of the geopolitics have come to our region <laughs> more profound than ever okay. before. Well, let, let me say that <clears throat> the focus has, on climate change was in the past on the science. You know, it was wonderful science, extremely interesting, attracting a lot of grant funding for the researchers, and we had to turn it into a, a human issue. Hmm. Now, the human issue is about, uh, it, I think it, it reinforced the pressure to cut back on emissions. And that's been the focus on carbon emissions. But there's been no genuine discussion of what to do with the people who would be affected. That is still missing in the international debate. Simply because nobody is willing to say, yes, we understand it's going to happen. We are ready to deal with it. Okay? Nobody, no country has stepped forward, except Fiji has done that. And I, I announced it because uh, Fiji has been the only country with the moral courage to step forward and say, yes, if, if, it, if it comes to that, we will step forward. But here we are continuing to tighten our border controls. And so that has been the problem. And uh, we need to, to understand that the world, and I keep saying it, the world that we know today will be, it's going to be a very different world even in 10 years' time. And uh, but. But are we ready for it? Are we ready that, uh, are we, what's going to be our reaction? With the, the pressure for migration from displaced people, what's going to be the response of countries? Are they going to tighten up their borders or are they going to loosen up to allow for the humanitarian uh, act to, you know, so that you have to do the right thing? And that is the challenge and I think, um, I don't have the answer because nobody has stepped forward, but I think the pressure is there, and I think uh, it's got to be it's got to be posed with the countries. They, all, I think if you would, some of you would go back to my statements in the past, I've um, drawn the analogy of the the what the Titanic, and again I have been misinterpreted. <laughs> when I draw the, the analogy of the Titanic, it's about the morality of people on the lifeboats. And those in the waters, okay? And whether those on the lifeboat would, would have the compassion to bring those swimming on board or they're going to push them away so they can 
remain retain the what the, the wonderful life that lifestyle that they've been able they don't want to be uh, that to be compromised and that is the challenge I've always said and I continue to say that climate change is the greatest moral challenge to humanity ever and in the years ahead our humanity is truly going to be tested can I just say one thing yes. I, th I think um, we've been struck by people have been struck in this region and, and so thankful for your leadership over time in in uh, in the climate change space and I think um, in that recent um, International Court of Justice or the or the UN resolution the fact that there was a group of Pacific youth hmm. who are actually at the heart of that driving that hmm. there is an incredible confidence to uh, make the claim around climate in uh, and from from countries and from organizations across the Pacific but part of that is because of the leadership yourself and others have shown in sort of making the position uh, the Pacific position clear mm. and and giving space for that and I think there's a real thankfulness ac across the region and it's a real tribute when you see examples like that in terms of Pacific youth standing up uh, in terms of the leadership you've been able to provide over time so mm. well it's um it is going to be it's not our world it's what we've done it's what we are doing to prepare the world for them to come with because so far I must say that um, I don't know will I survive until 2060 when the waters are coming over the, the home islands. And I hope well before then that um, some kind of a solution mm. would have been identified. I think we've got to come to terms with the reality that uh, we've got to stop thinking about me, okay? And getting what it is that is good for me, but it doesn't matter if it's not good for anybody else. Mm. I think we've got to change the narrative. I think, uh, I understand from my, and my understanding is that maybe it's it's the system that we've, that's been dominant, which is maybe the capitalist system, which was, what, greed is good, it's great. No, let's get away from that. You know, let's share with you some of our Pacific ideologies, which is, come on, let's look after each other, okay? It's about us. It's not about me alone. And what a note to end the discussion today. I want to thank you, Jay, um, and most of all, um, thank you to our special guest, former Kiribati President, Anwati uh, Tong. What an honor to have you on our podcast. We'll catch you next time here on the Pacific Wayfinder, your guide to navigating cross-currents of security in the Blue Pacific continent. Sapo Okamdapa.